Hi, I'm Jet Stubbs, and my black is transnational. You are listening to season five of My Dad's Podcast. My Black is Transnational, a podcast about blackness and reconnecting back to our native homeland. Find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Check us out on YouTube. You can follow us on Instagram or blacktransnational.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. everyone welcome to another episode of my black is transnational my name is dr kalaji bay lamberts and actually this is episode two of season five so we are just getting the ball rolling on the season so i'd like to thank you all for tuning in Um, this episode is titled the trauma of money and i have a really good conversation with our guest jet stubbs who is a career coach, a business coach, who talks about her experience as a Canadian immigrant from the Bahamas um, and how her transnational experience as a career coach, as a black woman, and someone who deals a lot with money, um, how it plays a role. So there's a lot of trauma that affects us as immigrants, children of immigrants and transnationals alike from in our old country and our new country. And there's a lot of things that inhibit us from being able to generate and accrue and grow our wealth. And so we get into a really interesting conversation about that, which I'd like to share with you all in a few moments. But before we get into that, let's go through our formalities. If this is your first time listening to My Black is Transnational, you can find this podcast anywhere. Please be sure to download and subscribe, review the podcast. Your ratings and feedback is very important to us. You can find us on Instagram at Black Transnational Podcast. You can find me, the host, at Black Transnational underscore. Check out our website, right? We're at blacktransnational.com where you get all the information that you need to know about our guests the hosts and upcoming episodes you can also find us on twitter yes i said it again and again but we are on twitter now at mb transnational not as active as you'd like us to be but we're finally active so please join um all right so that's our formalities and i really want to get straight into this because this is definitely not the shortest of episodes and there's it's a worthwhile it's a worthwhile listen and I don't want you all spending time listening to me ramble on. So I really want to get into this content. Again, I titled this episode Trauma of Money and I hope you all enjoy it because it's a really deep conversation. So with that being said, here's my conversation with Miss Jet Stubbs. Enjoy. I have a very special guest here um, who has a very interesting story. Uh, that I know that she's excited to share and um, just a very fascinating, um, insightful approach. And so I have Ms. Jet Stubb, Stubbs, I should say, um, who will be joining us. Um, and you'll let us know a little bit more about where you represent and your transnational background. But right now, um, Jet Stubb is a career and business coach um, and the host of the Happy Career Formula podcast, right? And I think you did something incredible in terms of 90 days, right? Just being able to turn things around and create a business or else you have to like ship out, right? And so I'm very interested in hearing that story once we get into it. Um, But uh, so without any further ado, uh, Jet, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for your patience and and you're here and and it's a pleasure to meet you. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yes, I did have 90 days to build a career or start a business or leave the country in Canada. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I was an international student. I'm originally from the Bahamas. So I had to figure it out. And that is part of my like, transnational journey. Yes. Yeah. The beginning so, of it <laughs> so the bahamas right and that's where you're from and so i mean it's very it's always interesting because on this platform i've been working hard to try and bring in more of the um the caribbean the island perspective in terms of black immigrant representation we tend to we tend to have a lot of west african nigerian Ghanaian, um and so it's really always nice to have you know our sisters and brothers from the islands uh, and the diaspora who can kind of share their perspective. So um, before we get into the story, right, if you could just give, you know, a brief background as far as what you currently do, right, and, you know, who you are, you said you represent the Bahamas, shout out to that. But what else about you can our audience learn more? Sure. Like you said, I'm a career and a business coach and the podcast host for the Happy Career Formula. So I help people find what they love to do and sell themselves with confidence, whether that's for a job, a freelance service or a business. And so a lot of people get confused. How do you do this, whether it's for a job or a business? Well, I teach a seven step process that helps you go from no idea to systems that will attract employers or clients to you because there are a lot of the same principles apply, whether you're looking to write a really effective resume to land six-figure job or to start your own business and land your first like 50 clients. So I, I help people go through that process so they can have flexibility to flex between a job or a business so that they can design work to fit their life. Because it's not really about landing that job or starting that business. It's about designing your work and how you make money to allow you to live the life and the lifestyle that you want. Oh, wow. So you are an international student. And so was that something that you were passionate about or was that something that you just, just kind of landed on um, through your experiences? It was something I landed on through my experiences. So like this goes to the story, right? I had 90 days to find a job or leave the country. I was an international student. I graduated in 2000 level recession and I sent out, I wanted to stay in Canada. I sent out over hundred job applications and I got zero responses. I was really devastated. And a lot of people have been in that place. You send out so many job applications. You feel like you've done what you were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Hard work, education, experience, you're building out your profile, you're building out your resume. And then you send out this, this resume and you apply to jobs and it's crickets. And you're like, mm. what did I do wrong? Why is nobody getting back to me? Okay. Uh, what's wrong with me? And I had to realize that it takes one set of skills to do a job and another set of skills to get a job. So I had to learn how to sell mm. myself. So I had 90 days to learn how to sell myself. And I went from that 0% response rate to 100 job applications to getting a 70% response rate to 10 job applications. And then I was able to replicate that process. And then I was able to help others replicate that process. So when I got my first job, um, I was able to sell myself even after I got hired within my first 18 months, I was able to go, get to a point where the president of the company was signing off on bonuses every other month to give me like a couple extra thousand because my job was changing so quickly because I was able to do work that was just beyond what they initially expected. So instead of changing my job description every few months, they just gave me bonuses to align with the work that I was doing. Um, so it, 
that started there and people were like, Hey, at that company, the young employees were considered 25 to 30 here. I was 22 already getting all of this attention. So people were like 25 to 30 would be an entry level role. But within my first 18 months, I was doing senior level work. I was indirectly leading a team of four. So people just started coming to me and asking me like, how are you doing this? A lot of people thought it was nepotism. Oh, you know, somebody, but I was like, I'm an immigrant. I don't have a single family member in this country. How (laughs) this is not a nepotism situation. (laughs) This is, this is me selling myself. And I, this was just through online applications. A lot of people talk, talk about networking. I do help my clients understand how to network, but I also help people learn how to sell yourself when you have zero network, when you have zero connections and you're starting off in a new country Mm. and you're starting off from scratch. So how do you, how do you do that? And how do you sell yourself? That's the process that that seven step process that I created. But then along the way, I started to experience obstacles. And when I tell my, when I call it obstacles, my friends laugh because they were really major. My mom was stabbed 17 times in a robbery and thankfully lived. My first supervisor um, was racist. She used to make a buzzer noise every time I said something that sounded like I was from a foreign country. And I was from a foreign country. <laughs> so there were a lot of words. And she would do this even if I was doing a presentation in front of like 50 people. She would stop me, she would make the buzzer, and she would repeat it until I said the word correctly. So that's like a Jeopardy buzzer, like, eh. And say it again, say it again, say it again until you say it correctly. And it was a lot of things that this, like the model minority idea too, right? I was, oh, you're different. You can, you're so close to being Canadian. I could just teach you the rest. And then you would, you would, um, represent this company appropriately but that wasn't the view of the entire company and I did have a lot of supportive people along the way but it was a a place where I was experiencing a lot of discrimination I walked into meetings sometimes and the worst time was I had somebody refuse to meet with me because he said there was no way I could be responsible for partnerships for this organization and he had to speak to my manager And so my manager at the time, because they cut out my supervisor because I filed an HR complaint, was the like one of the vice presidents of the organization. So I had to call in the vice president of the organization to sit down with this guy. And all she did was repeat the questions that he asked to me. And then I gave the answer and then she got up and she said, do you see what's happening here? I do not know the answers to these questions. You either have to work with her or you just don't do business with this company. But I had to have that level of support for the level of discrimination that I was experiencing, which is exhausting. So I got to this place where... Um, and all of these things happened within an 18 month time frame. Mm. I did not have any family. <laughs> I did not, I was living alone in an apartment. I didn't have any friends in the city. I had just moved there. So this was, it was a really rough period. And I realized no matter how much money you make, no matter how much success you have, you want money can't, making money can't stop when life goes wrong mm-hmm. and you want to find a way to make money that works for your life and your situation. I didn't want to be there dealing with this like racist supervisor and all of this discrimination when my mom had just been attacked in Robbie. I'd rather have just been there. I did go down for two weeks, but I'd rather have stayed longer. So how can I design my life to, 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 to have work that fits my life goals. Mm-hmm. And Along the way, I I started having people coming and asking me for career advice and I started helping them. Initially, people were getting $25,000, $30,000 salary increases. And I was like, oh, I'm just helping a friend. 
it's it's just me helping a friend. I'm helping them out. Oh, you know, you don't need to pay me. I'm glad you're in a better work situation, a better work environment. Right. And then people just started insisting because they were getting so much more money. They're like, I have to give you something. So right. they start giving me gift cards. And then one day I wanted to go and buy food and like from Uber Eats, you know, just ordering some Uber Eats. And I was like, I have this gift card to Home Depot because I really like Home Depot, <laughs> but I don't have... <laughs> But I'm paying like for it. cash <laughs> for my Uber Eats. <laughs> what? Like, you can't eat a nail? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> so, like, why didn't I accept cash? And then I really had to think about my relationship with money and why I was telling people they didn't need to pay me anything, mm -hmm. even though I was helping them make more money. And even though I wanted to do something different that aligned with who I was. Right. So, Initially, I was burnt out, like I was beyond burnt out at this point. And I just left and I found I stayed within the same organization, but I moved to like a different department, different location, different mm -hmm. site. Um, I found uh, a, a supervisor who was honestly like an older white Canadian guy, but he had been to the Caribbean. He knew the culture. He was very welcoming and he created an awesome working environment for me. Um, but I got really bored really quickly in this company. Like it was just a, a job where I knew it too well. And yeah. they put me on this leadership, leadership track position where, you know, they, they rotate you through the organization they give you mentors. It's hard to get into. Mm -hmm. It's to create the future leaders of the organization. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I got there, I was like, this is not where I need to be. Even these leadership roles seem super dull. Like it just didn't oh. seem engaging. And you don't I, sound, I you don't sound, even describing it, you don't sound fulfilled. <laughs> like, <laughs> like even describing it, you're just like, oh, it seems underwhelming. It was, it was very underwhelming and it was an amazing opportunity. Like it was competitive people. I know a bunch of people who didn't get into it, but when I got there, I was like, this is still work that I could do tomorrow. If you just let me do it, if there was less barriers to employment. Um, I remember applying to jobs sometimes and they, basically told me to my face, you don't look the part. Your qualifications are amazing, but I didn't expect you to look like this. Like I looked too young. I looked, I, I just didn't look the part that they expected. And I saw that there was a glass ceiling where I'd have to wait my turn rather than delivering results. And at the same time, I was then helping people secure raises and get salary increases. I was still career coaching. I, I got to the place where some of my friends would invite me over to dinner, but then they'd really just invite all of their friends who were struggling getting jobs and they would pay me, they'd give me food and I was just coaching everybody in the room uh, mm -hmm. and giving them career advice. And eventually I saw some people were in really toxic work environments and I said, hey, I love learning about business. The reason I was able to move to Canada is because my parents were entrepreneurs. They didn't have access to university education. They couldn't afford it. It just was not accessible to them at the time. And they had self-taught themselves how to build a, a million dollar business. They'd built mm -hmm. out a car and villa rental company. And that is what was able to give me access to move to Canada. And I said, my parents taught me everything that they knew or they could teach me about how to run it. They wanted me to take over their business. And I love learning about how to apply this to the digital age, um, how to how to use um, online advertising and how to how to how to sell yourself and how to structure it for the online age that we're in now so you can attract clients without having to go through the more manual processes that my parents went through. Yeah. And 
I did that. And some people started being able to like replace their income and leave their nine to five. And so that's how I branched out into business coaching. So it really was through delivering results. And now it's been like, I have helped clients secure six figure salary increases. So I've taken a recent client. Um, she just started her new job last month. I took her from 70,000 USD based salary to 160,000 USD based salary with up to uh, 390,000 in performance bonuses if she hits her targets and we set the targets so that they're very reasonable. And we were able to get a, her a business partner where they have matching contracts. So they're two people that I helped negotiate. I wrote all the emails, I helped them design it, design this career and pitch themselves to start an, a new branch within a company. And often this jump involves moving companies, but I also help people negotiate promotions within companies, but it's always a larger jump when you're switching companies. Cause then, it's different when you set the tone for how somebody sees your value. It's a lot harder to shift that versus when you're going someplace new and you're building your, and you're defining your value for someone who's never really met you or spoke with you before. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, one is very interesting because I is it's very telling that you're from Canada because you say USD, <laughs> you know, um, that's a, that's a tell. Uh, but I want, I, I think you spoke very, you know, you spoke very deeply about your experience and unpacking the different obstacles that you face. And, and I truly appreciate that. And then with that, it kind of helped me then want to take a step back to unpack because you mentioned that you're an international student. I kind of want to tap into with no family here. So I want to know what was growing up for you like in the Bahamas? What was your perspective about Canada and America and all these other places that you aspire to to go and your parents wanted you to go to you know to, to uh, um, pursue a better life affluence whatever the case may be success um, and then you faced this um, this surprise or um, I, I want to know what that experience was like once you faced what you faced in Canada which again you know being in America we tend to be so worried about how racist and crazy things are here that it's, I don't want to say refreshing, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like, oh, okay, like America's not the only place, right? Like they're, they're, the Black immigrant experience is such an interesting thing and people go through so many things. So I, I first want you to just talk a little bit about what growing up was like, what that, what your, what your thoughts were before when you got there and, and reality hit you. Yeah. And I do want to touch on it's yeah, it's not just a US thing. I have friends who went to school in, in Switzerland, Scotland, like it, it's all over the place, right. like racism. Like slaves were sent all over the place. Absolutely. <laughs> and racism exists all over the place. Yeah. Um, but as to my experience growing up, so my, as I said, my parents didn't have access to university education. Um, they're, they both went to government, so public schools in the Bahamas. And for them, once they started working, I should add, they both had barriers to completing high school. So my mom had to care give for her five younger sisters to the point where she was cooking in the stove at, at the stove when she was in about to finish high school in her second to last year, and she fainted at the stove, but she had to continue her caregiving duties instead of 
going like focusing on school. So she ended up having to repeat a year of school because of her caregiving responsibilities for her younger siblings. And my father grew up on like the Bahamas is an archipelago of 700 islands and keys off the coast of Florida next to Cuba. Um, and my father grew up on one of the smaller islands where they didn't actually go all the way up to grade 12. So he didn't finish, he didn't go up to that level of education. And I know that was uh, an area of like a sore spot for him, that lack of access, mm. especially as he established himself, because mm. a lot of his peers, especially the younger ones, had access to university education. And so when he was writing out his resume, he didn't focus on all of the accomplishments he had. He focused on that lack of a, a paper. Like he felt like he was missing something. So when they made money, I, I was the second generation of kids that they had. I have ki I have siblings that are about 18 years older than me, 13 years older than me. So that was the, those are kids my parents had in their 20s. When they had mm. me in their 40s, they were more established. Mm. And so they used that and they were like, okay, well, how are we going to educate these ones differently? And their thought, they didn't know much about like how to choose a good school or how to how how to pick the best education when i called my parents talking about like the racism i was experiencing they basically said i trust that you can deal with this but we don't know how to help you because we've only experienced a black country we've only mm -hmm. experienced a country that would say hey take those views back to your country and leave us alone we they don't know how to operate in a predominantly white country when that's happening uh -huh. so when my parents decided to cho were choosing which school to send me to, they basically said, you know what, let's just send her to the school where the rich white foreigners who have education have sent their kids to school. So I went to an international school my entire life, which is yeah. why when I went off and I started working, my accent wasn't as strong. Like yeah. it, that's why I went to school with Canadians, with people from all across Europe. Yeah. Um, more than half of my class was white. Yeah. So and I, I stayed there from kindergarten or reception or preschool to all the way up to um, grade 12. Mm -hmm. And I, I was like top of my class, but it was a very, it was like bridging two worlds because mm -hmm. I would go into this, this gated community where a lot of big names and like movie stars live in the Bahamas, right? Cause a lot of people go and settle in the Bahamas when they have millions of dollars because it's a tax haven. Mm -hmm. And then they use that as a way they create a bubble and they, they don't give back to the local community often, right? They separate themselves. It's like, Oh, the locals are there's this almost an idea that's not always as extreme, but the locals are dangerous. You don't go into certain neighborhoods, you avoid certain things and you stay within your, your white bubble yeah. and it becomes financially difficult for locals to access that bubble as more and more wealth comes and focuses on those neighborhoods. So the like the Western tip of Nassau, the island that I'm from is very much like that. And that's also the area that I grew up and went to school in. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not the area that I lived because my parents were very adamant of staying outside of gates. They never lived behind gates. They were one of the first ones to buy into predominantly white communities. Nice. So my parents were one of the first black people to own housing in predominantly white, like millionaire neighborhoods. Um, so that it also paved the way because it gave access. Like there was a very much this idea of you have to give back to your community. You have to know where your privilege what, where your privilege is coming from. Mm -hmm. But it was bridging worlds because at the same time, sometimes like one of the earlier guys I dated, he was um, a Haitian Bahamian, is a Haitian Bahamian. 
and he, where he was growing up, we had to have real conversations about money because he used to pay his, his dad used to pay $50 a month to rent a piece of land, which was essentially like an illegal home. He, he didn't have running water most of that time. He was living in that home. He didn't have electricity. But for me, $50 at the time was money to go out and spend on a weekend. So when we started dating, there were a lot of conversations that we had because I was bridging like multiple socioeconomic classes. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's on a small island where you can interact with the, the Nassau is 250, 300,000 people yeah. now. Uh, when I was growing up, it was even smaller than that. When my parents were growing up, it was much smaller than that. You're talking about 100,000 or less. Wow. And it's wow. very interconnected. The families are big. So you will speak with and interact with somebody who's super wealthy on one side of your family and someone who's like struggling with poverty, but is has a network of people ideally because they do have wealthier family members who help to supplement their income. And there is that idea of that black tax as you get up, mm -hmm. as you grow, as you are able to make more money, you, you then have money. to pass that on and help people. But the more you stretch your money to help people, the less money that you have to yes. accumulate wealth. And it's this idea that, okay, now you've made it. Now you must take care of me because people cannot see their own path to taking care of themselves. They don't know where those opportunities lie. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that happened for me, because my parents were wealthy, it often attract, uh, attracted like robberies and, and theft. So when I was younger, um, we were robbed like multiple times uh, before my parents separated, like maybe about 20 times. So I was held at gunpoint for the first time when I was eight years old. This is not the normal story in the Bahamas, by the way. I shouldn't, because people often think, oh, they hear one story and it's like every single person's story is like this. This is not the normal story. <laughs> um, but you were held, you, you were talking about being held at gunpoint at the age of eight. That's yes. And you said then you were saying that it wasn't, it's not something that is the common things and not to scare people off. That, that's kind of where you left off at. Yes. Yeah, so when the first time that this happened where I was held at gunpoint, there were two guys who came to, to um, rob my parents and I was outside playing and my parents had left the door open so that I could come inside, like come in and out. And my brother and I were trying to build a tent because we had seen the white people on TV building tents. Mm -hmm. And so we were kids and we we're like, okay, let's, let's try this thing. So we took some of oh, my mom's really good sheets and we threw them across the clothesline, <laughs> clothing line and put some rocks down. We were trying to build a tent. We got into a fight as we were doing it. And so he went inside and sat on my mom's lap and play, played solitaire with her mm -hmm. while I stayed outside to build this tent. So they couldn't see me when when they came to came out to the house, but I saw them and I was going to go and, and run and tell the neighbors. But as I stepped back, um, like the leaves crickled under my feet. And so they heard me and they, one guy went to go and get me and he um, put his hand over my mouth. So I wouldn't scream. Cause I, I just sort of froze in fear. And as I, as he, the leader with the gun said, take her to the bushes. And I just, fought I my mom had told me like anytime anybody's trying to take you away drag you away she sat down she told me all these lessons to what to look out for and so I just fought I kept on fighting he's like she's fighting me um and then they said okay just take her inside so they took me inside and I he was covering my mouth but he'd accidentally covered my nose because his hand was so big compared to my face mm -hmm. and he was suffocating me 
And my parents saw, my parents were all, my parents and my bro- younger brother were in this room. It was like the office space where, cause they ran the business from home. And my, they were like, okay, we're going to hold you at gunpoint. They said, don't worry. We're not going to hurt you. Just told my dad, come put your hands up in the air and we're take me to the safe. Uh, there was this idea that there was all this money sitting in the safe, but it was just old papers. Um, <laughs> so um, they, he's holding me and he's suffocating me and I'm trying to kick and get my mom to see that I can't breathe and she says then she finally sees me and she recognizes because she's in panic mode and she's like please give me my daughter she can't breathe and then he he looks at me and he moves his hand over my nose and he's like I'm so sorry I wasn't that was not intentional um and the guy with the gun goes off and takes my dad to go and rob him and then the other guy comes and he sits with my mom and my younger brother my mom my, me and my younger brother are sitting on my mom's lap we're we're small we're like seven six and seven at this time seven eight maybe and my mom is just sitting there and I can feel her legs trem- trembling under my under me mm-hmm. and he's he gets this knife from the kitchen and he just starts tapping it against the wood like tap 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 and it's making my mom incredibly nervous until mm-hmm. the point where she says, can you, can you please not tap the knife? And he says, I'm so sorry, ma'am. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to make you so nervous. <laughs> and then he starts talking to my brother and I, he's like, where do you two go to school? And my mom's like, don't answer that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and he, he then said, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you, but where do you go to school? And then I answer and he's like, that's a really good school. Your parents are investing a lot of money in your education. You should stay in school and focus on your education so you don't end up like me. And he's like, I said, he said, I I didn't realize how important school was and how much it it leads into other things. So it leads into if you don't do well in school, you have trouble accessing college. And if you have trouble accessing college, you have trouble accessing good jobs. And we live on a small island where there's not a diverse economy. There's not a lot of different job opportunities. So when you can't access these job opportunities, everything becomes limited. And I was just looking at him, I was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. I never thought it that way. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Jet. You just told me that this is a robbery. This is supposed to be a robbery, right? Wait, you good? Oh, yeah. Okay, now I can hear you. Sorry, my earpods must have went off. Oh, no, I just said, wait a minute. This is supposed to, this is in the middle of a robbery. (laughs) And this is like turned into like a mentoring moment? (laughs) Yes, it did. It did. So it's all related. I I find it very funny, not the situation, but I laugh because the the black experience right they it you you it really highlights poverty and what people got to do what they got to do and of course it's it's one of those situations where it's like you know this perception that people who rob you and again no one is promoting stealing or whatever but where you're, you're stuck in, cir- in circumstances when you decide to put yourself in the other person's um shoe and, and have some level of empathy to understand why do they do what they do and and to see that right like that's such a, a polite robbery like that's not one that you typically hear of where you can tell that it's more of a desperation type of situation where you're pushed to do things in order to survive um 
but that's just still in itself incredible, right? Like just to hear, like we are in the middle of a robbery, right? When I was in Nigeria, I was, I've, I've, I've been involved in family members and friends being robbed in their household, never to that extent to the point where like you are getting a coaching, like, hey, you know, you might want to like stay in school and, you know, focus on like, investing in stock and stuff like that like, you know it's but it's, it's so incredible and I just I just have to for those listening this is in, I love it this is please continue it was interesting because after after the robbery was over um the guy with the gun like he ended up just taking my, my dad's watch he used to wear a nice watch like a Rolex um and his rings and I think some some cash, but they never knew where the cash was actually hidden. So they never actually walked away with much. Um, and I had seen the, the guy who stayed with us with the knife, I'd seen his face. And I had told my parents, had told the police this when the police came, because they said, don't call anybody for 10 minutes, don't call the police for 10 minutes, and then um, and then you'll be fine because they were like, if you call the police for 10 minutes, we may not have gotten away and we may have to come back and that won't be good. Mm. So my parents waited, they called the police. And when the police came, they said, uh, my dad was like, oh, my daughter's an artist. I, I was taking art classes. She's like, let her draw the face of this man. I was like, I can't draw. I was like, I can't draw a face. <laughs> Draw stick figure and be like, that's him. <laughs> I drew this like Hitler-esque mustache. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, to me, and I my mom asked me questions afterwards, and she said, you know, I don't know if you should draw this guy's face. Because uh, they asked me to then they found some people and they took me to they took me down to um, the police station with the two way mirror, like a few weeks later to go and identify this person. Mm -hmm. And I remember on the drive there, my mom was talking to me. And she's like, I can't you can't tell the police that I told you this because this is obstruction of justice. But I don't think you should identify this person. And I was like, I agree. He was super nice. And my mom was saying it for totally different reasons. She was like, <laughs> she, because <laughs> um, he, during the robbery, he'd also said he needed the medicine because his grandmother was sick and he couldn't afford the medicine. And I said, well, we have more money. So why shouldn't he, like, we sh he should have the medicine for his grandmother. And my mom was saying it because she had been involved in a, a bank robbery. Like it, it, she was a teller while the bank was being robbed mm -hmm. and she identified the face of the robber in court. And as he was going away, he said, when I get out of jail, I will kill you. And my mom said, you know, unfortunately, but thankfully for me, he died in prison, but you are, so young if even if he gets 10 years you will still be a teenager when he gets out like what if he says the same thing to you i don't want you to have to have that over your head like don't don't identify this guy and my brother was like no you should identify him and my brother was of course like seven years old so i wasn't listening to him and but i didn't want to do it because i thought this person was trying to figure out how to make life work and my parents were really big. Like my dad, um, when he had dementia a few years ago and he passed away, when he, before that happened, my 
he's my brother said he was sitting down for lunch with my dad and somebody came up and recognized him and tried to speak with him and my brother said oh you know he can't really have a conversation right now he's just not mentally there and he sat down and told my brother a story of when he was trying to steal from my father and my father said no instead of stealing let me teach you how to make money and he taught him how to make money and then paid for a portion of his education so he could go off to school and we had no idea that this happened, but like at my father's funeral, a lot of these stories came out where he had told people who were trying to steal from him, let me teach you how to fish so you don't have to steal or you don't have to, you, you know that there are pathways and opportunities and options for you. Mm-hmm. And he was in the, the theater and he used the theater as a way to fundraise to help people go off to school and things that he had never had access to. He didn't get ever get the chance to go off to school. He he liked to read. My parents uh, like were big on educating themselves, but they never had a lot of access to that formal education, and they they learned a lot by by watching and by doing. But they created pathways for other people to access the things that they wish they never had access to. Mm-hmm. So this idea that I should send this guy to jail was very very hard for me to process, and so I just said no. I didn't see him. Of course I said nope. And they were like, we need like yes or no. And I said, yeah. I said, no, I don't, I don't see him behind the window. And for me, that was a big moment to think about, to think about how I see education, how I see access to opportunity. And then when I started really reading about post-colonialism and how slavery impacts the way, um, the way the world is working, especially in predominantly black countries, like in the Caribbean, slavery plantations were typically like twice the size of the ones that they were in the US. They were large, They people weren't surviving and they kept on bringing in more and more um, slaves to fulfill the, fill the population instead of through birth mm. because people just weren't living through it. And to have that history where you have a country that is in a lot of the Caribbean, like, like 90, 80, 80 to 90% of the population was being run by 5%. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have a history where there's such a deeply ingrained, oh, the foreigner is better. I've had so many cousins who went off to school, who got the foreign education to come back to school and they were offered $50,000, $30,000 more until they realized they were originally locals and then that salary got cut. Wow. Yeah. They cut it? They cut the salary. They said, you're a local, you don't need it. (gasps) We don't have taxes. We don't have income tax in the Bahamas. We have sales tax. If you earn that money, they just said no, because if you're from here, you You don't you don't don't need need that that. because you have to submit your like passports and your documents they're like oh well we offered you this as a foreigner now that you're a local you don't need that money there is this deeply internalized idea that the foreigner is better the foreigner is going Mm. to work at a different standard the foreigner earns more money the foreigner is moving it doesn't matter that you've lived away now to get your education for over 10 years and now you're coming back it's this idea that the foreigner is better. Mm, mm. You know, I, I, that resonates with me because it, it just shows again how 
much how parallel a lot of our lives and experiences are in these you know formerly colonized countries because that's that idea of the foreigner is better is not an old concept unfortunately it's something that we experience even to this day sometimes even our parents tend to be proponents of that in regards to speaking their language and going to the their international schools right and it's all with the intention of you know wanting better for their their kids and all that but it's also that idea that what comes from outside is much more better who comes from outside brings better things than what we do it it's very common um it was very common thing in nigeria which i think is slowly changing but it's changing a lot more in ghana now but in like other other people from different countries that i've talked to um on this uh, on this podcast have shared very similar um insight in terms of just how they perceive foreigners specifically white <laughs> like white you know yes. white people and um you know i just find that to be completely fascinating yet also very sad saddening um and so i wonder then right like so you you know going through all of this and, and so and and going to canada experiencing what you've experienced and you also mentioning we talked you talked a lot about the financial responsibilities and how in our culture the black tax and how that and you know how that affects our ability to um generate wealth right generational wealth right and because the money is supposed to be going downstream but unfortunately it tends to go up upstream because you're now having to pay back your family members, aunties, uncles, grandparents, you know, who need the care. Therefore, you don't have the ability to be able to set or, or invest in things and, and, and acquire assets and all the things that you see other people doing, the better foreigners doing, right? It's, it's almost very contradictory because they believe that you're that, that you're trying to that what the foreigners are better, but then when you try to do what the foreigners are doing, we also block ourselves from being able to accomplish those things. So it's it's like it's it's fine. It's very it's very frustrating, and it's and it is very I won't say hypocritical, but it's just contradictory in how we we tend to deal with these things in in, in the diaspora and the black immigrant experience. Absolutely, and it it can be. <sighs> There are limits that we then set on ourselves about what we are capable of and what we can do. So I think one of the, the biggest lessons I've learned um, growing up is because my, my parents had achieved a certain level of wealth, I knew that it was possible. Mm. Whereas when I work with people sometimes or, or when I would try and uh, coach people, especially when I was working with people of color, like black people, especially if they were born and raised in predominantly white spaces, like mm -hmm. the, the US and Canada, there is this inherent belief that they cannot hit certain ceilings. They cannot go and surpass. I, I remember speaking to somebody and like, for me, it was mind blowing. She's like, nobody in my family makes more than $30 an hour. Mm. Nobody. And she's like, I don't know like $30 an hour sounds amazing to me. And to me, that was what I was making by my first job. Like by, so that was the, the starting point. And then you, you go 
up from there. Mm -hmm. But it's a mindset shift when I'm trying to tell a client, hey, right now, I remember I was working with this client, he was making about 40,000. And I said, you could sell these skills that you have right now that you've built through this job. And I can get you into a job that makes 120 to 140,000. If we pitch you correctly, because it starts from the foundation of going to the right industry where you will be valued, Mm -hmm. applying to the right job at the right level. Because sometimes like a job title, for example, I I do career coaching and business coaching. As a career coach, when I've looked at contracts or like received offers, I've received anything from an offer from 30,000 Canadian to 300,000 USD. Mm. And the job title is still career coach. Mm-hmm. So it's all about industry and who you're serving and how you're serving them. Mm-hmm. The, a lot of the skills I'd be using are the same. It's just where am I choosing to work and who am I choosing to serve? So I told him you can jump from 40,000 Canadian to 120,000. And he, he got the job, he got the interview. And then there was just pure panic. It's like, I don't deserve this. Who am I to do this? This isn't realistic for me. And that barrier can be so hard to break because it's an internalized belief of self-worth. And when you're looking at people who historically, generations before you were told their labor is worth nothing and it is in the ownership of somebody else, it makes sense why generations later, people who are struggling to see their worth and their value and see themselves as capable of making beyond X amount. Mm -hmm. And you have to look at that intergenerational trauma when you look at your relationship with money, because money is a way to create safety. And you have a community Mm -hmm. that's struggling with creating safety because that was ripped away from them. And they don't know how to how to create it for themselves. So many times when I'm speaking to like my younger family members, the questions that they ask around their late teens, early twenties is what does healthy look like? Cause if you don't even know how to, if you don't even know what it looks like, how do you go about creating it? You know, what feels wrong, you know, what you're struggling with, but then how do you go about creating something that feels healthier, that feels more holistic? How do you go about designing this career that you'll absolutely love when you know the people around you are struggling financially and you haven't seen a relationship with money or that exchange of wealth that that works? And also, how do you do it when you're trying to do that within community? So many people are like, I want to serve and help Black communities. But when we are taught all of these internalized beliefs that come from colonization, that come from slavery, that are built to turn tear us down, then we apply those things even subconsciously to tear each other down Mm -hmm. and we are saying okay well come on help me out give me this discount even though like I'll have people I just had somebody last week that wanted to work with me and he he was he was a black person and I said okay you work with me um pay me x amount I guarantee a five-time return on your investment Mm -hmm. or I will give you a refund until you get that five that five-time return on your investment on your salary increase this was for an executive level role but I said most of my clients get that minimum five-time return on investment you'll probably get much more and you can walk away with that money and he was trying to negotiate a discount and I'm like you are trying to negotiate a discount when I am guaranteeing you a return on your investment so you want me to not get paid while you go and wake walk away and make more money yeah and you will make this money every year once you get take this new job and you don't and want more. me to make 20 five five times an investment in me i'll make 20 percent of the salary increase and and that that's a minimum you may make way more than that so i may take a much smaller percentage of that 
and you are refusing to pay that to me. You want to negotiate me down, negotiate my value down when I'm guaranteeing you a return on your investment. And I just said, no, yeah. I don't want to work with you. Yeah. So what do you, what do you find and, and what do you find more challenging or which group of clients do you find more, um, I'm not going to say difficult, but more challenging based off what you described? Do you, um, do you find our, you know, Blacks that are raised or born in predominantly white countries like the U.S. and Canada, or do you find our immigrants, um, newly immigrant who kind of relate to you and I, um, do you find them more difficult to work I shouldn't say more challenging um, to work with based off what we described. Um, so that's interesting. I had to think a lot about that. I was, I was choosing my niche. So a lot of it is there, there's a lot at play. So I, I don't, I do have um, white clients, but they'll typically be people who are looking for international work. The mm -hmm. typical um, like white male wouldn't think that they need to learn from me just exactly. based on how I look. Yeah. Um, the, the immigrant who is trying to excel and hit their six-figure targets is often my best, best client. People who are trying to do international or remote work or travel because they already have a mindset that says, I am capable of achieving more than I'm doing right now. And that is the hardest mindset to break. Mm -hmm. So when I... When I first started coaching, I had a bleeding heart and I saw so many people, I saw their potentials. Like you could be doing so much more. You could be making so much more. And I had spent so much time coaching those people mm -hmm. that it was such an energy drain because the main coaching was around their blockages, around their own self-worth rather than how to do the thing or how to learn how to do the thing. Mm -hmm. And the the shift I had to make was see, helping people see how they can earn more and do more. But if they have that internal belief and they're already striving for that within themselves, those are my ideal clients. So mm -hmm. immigrants tend to have that because they are already branching out and exploring a new country. The difference is like what stage, like I should say immigrants who have had access to education tend to have that. Some who do not also have, who have had, who have not had access to education also have that drive, but the difference is really the drive. It's just like statistically more likely to be there and people who've had access to education because they've just been exposed to more versus if you haven't, depending if you've stepped outside of your circles or stepped outside of the, the family unit you grew up in, how much you've mm -hmm. stepped outside of that community, you may not know um, what's available to you or what options are there. And mm -hmm. my ideal client really is someone who has a lot of skills and who does a lot of different things. And mm -hmm. they're just not sure. They have so many interests. They're not sure how to combine them into something that they actually enjoy. The type of person who's just going to go to work and come home and watch TV um, and not do anything else in the evenings, not have any other interests or hobbies usually isn't my ideal client because I mean, they may have built out an interesting skill set through their work, but they're not very like driven for their own professional growth. A lot of my clients are about helping their communities, um, giving back socially. They are about um, leaving a legacy, building wealth, creating intergenerational wealth or creating intergenerational access to their community for their communities. Wow. Okay. That is, you know, that's interesting because you didn't really mention like, African-Americans or like even like Black Canadian-Americans who are like second gen born there. Um, it seems like mo most of your clients 
um, are immigrants? They're immigrants or they're looking to immigrate and move around or do something mm. more international or remote. Okay. Um, I do have the, the, the second gen Canadian and US and they are usually coming to me for career coaching because they have deeply ingrained this idea of job stability and thriving in corporate America. Okay. So you primarily work with like people who are interested in like across. Are you first or second? You said I primarily work with people who are interested in corporate, corporate America, or do you work across various industries? So I work across 40 different industries um, so far. Um, I, it's more about, like I said, the type of person who's trying to design work to fit their life and who's looking yeah. to make six figures. Yeah. Um, you want to either um, get into that six-figure job market. So some of my clients right now, um, most of the clients I'm working with on the career coaching side, their starting salary is anywhere between um, 70 to about 250,000 before we start working together. Mm -hmm. um, and then for, and it's, it's similar for the um, business coaching side. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'll have clients who are, who are making a little bit less than that on the business coaching side, because they're really excited about the idea of replacing their income through, um, through their business. And that can, happens even faster when you're making less money, right? And when the, the, when the threshold is lower, it's yeah. easier to hit that threshold faster. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and what I found with, um, second generation Canadians and um, Americans is there, there are a lot of those deeply internalized beliefs about how much money they can make and what type, what is safety, this idea of job security. And that's one of this, one of the things that I really helped to break down and it's been validated with the pandemic and with all the layoffs that people are seeing this idea of a job being secure is not, that's not how it works. The job isn't secure. You create your own job security by knowing the value that you're delivering and understanding how like this capitalist society that we works in, that we live in works. Mm -hmm. So you have to know how do I use my skills in the way that um, matches market demand so I can ask for the most money that I can based on my current skills? How can I increase my skills so I can ask for more money in the future? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not just getting a degree for the sake of getting a degree uh, because I think it will help me in that piece of paper. So many of my clients, like I've had so many people say, no, I'm not ready to work with you right now. Go and get like anywhere from a 3000 to like a $100,000 MBA, like a $3,000 like certificate to a $100,000 MBA, and then still have trouble getting their next job Wow! because it's not about the MBA. It's not about their certificate. It's about how are you selling yourself? Mm -hmm. And you can get so much further when you learn how to sell yourself with the skills and education that you already have so that you can access opportunities and create the lifestyle that you want. And then you can actually focus your time on getting the education and more importantly, the knowledge, because it's not so much about the education. When you're in the real world, people care about the knowledge and what you can deliver and the results that you can deliver to them. Mm -hmm. So the way I've built out my business isn't by getting a bunch of coaching certifications. It's by helping clients get results and then using those results and showing them to other people and saying, hey, this is how I help somebody who's just like you. Let's see how we can work together so I can help you. And I'm very practical. Okay, let's build this out. Let's take you, okay, you have no idea what you want to do. 
Let's look at the lifestyle that you want to build, live, map that out, look at your skills, tie that to market demand, and make sure that the way that we are setting up your work or designing your job has the flexibility and the money and the time so that you can live the life that you want mm -hmm. and create something that you may not think is possible. I was working with a, an American client. She started working with me about two years ago. And she's just done two coaching contracts, one to find what you love to do, where I helped her. She'd just been laid off during the pandemic. And um, she was laid off in August. We started working together in October. And by February, she was exceeding the income that she was making from her job through freelance work that was fully remote. So it allowed her to travel to the UK to be with her partner. Mm. And I, she, we, we chatted um, 18 months after, about a year after she had finished the contract. She's like, I'm now going to go and live in the UK for three months. And I remember the first conversation that we had where you said, you have no idea where your life will be in 18 months if you go and you put in the processes and you allow yourself to believe that it is possible. Because mm -hmm. the first step is you have to believe it is possible. So you're willing to put in the baby steps to help you get there. Yeah. I mean, I, so as, as we're getting ready to wrap up, I, you've shared you've shared so much <laughs> like it's, and I, and I know our audience have to like really um break this down because you covered a lot of things even more like I was questions I was going to ask before you already kind of covered it uh, which is awesome but I do want to ask um one well maybe one and a half questions which is one like because you talked about being an immigrant here in a country where there's no family, you had to kind of do what you had to do to get to where you are now. So I want to know what message you share to other people, you know, who may be like you black women trying to navigate um, corporate America or whatever industry to kind of figure themselves out and being exposed to the type of racism and stereotype that you were exposed to. What messaging do you have to people similar to yourself, whether they be um, you know, Black women, Black men, immigrant, whatever the case may be, and how do they seek support in order to overcome these obstacles and barriers? That's a good question. So one of the things I am, one types of education I am doing right now is I'm getting certified in the trauma of money. Mm. Because they're, like I said, money is how we create safety for ourselves and our communities. Mm. And so we have to there are so many underlying beliefs that you have when you have intergenerational trauma that comes from slavery. Yeah. Um, and so many other, because that's just like slavery is the baseline. Then all the other things that pack on when you have that, those sort of broken communities and that harm that was done to you. Um, so one of the things that I teach people is there are a few, there are a few beliefs that a lot of people have. One is making money makes you evil or bad, or it another one is like making money will disconnect me from my community. There's this idea of, oh, you make money, now you're out of touch. We can't mm -hmm. sit around and joke about being broke together because, hey, she's not broke anymore. That's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's real. That's real. That, that's real in That's true. <laughs> Yeah. Right. It's like, oh, you don't know what it's like anymore because you have that money or you yeah, should help me girl. out. Right? Can't, talk about, can't talk about your Home Depot gift cards anymore. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Um, or there's this idea that uh, if you are a good person, you give all of your money back to your community and there's very little room for self-care. Women, 
get caught in that cycle a lot. It's, I must give to my children. I must give to my cousin. I must help the mother down the road who I know is in the same situation I am. I'm not saying that you should do those things. I'm just saying that as a community, why can't we work together to build wealth together exactly. so that we have more to share and we're not trying to share the little or stretch the little that we have. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying, why can't we look at that money differently? So it's about shifting those relationships. Another one is, um, I don't know if you're allowed to curse, but you have to take crap to like, yeah, you have to take shit at work. And that is just a part of the process that is so ingrained, especially in like second generation Canadian and American. Like I have to take shit because I've taken shit the entire way mm-hmm. and people are going to think less of me and they are going to, I'm going to have to prove myself or work twice as hard to get where I want to be. And there became this point where I remember I was coaching, I was doing a coaching contract for people with disabilities. And I was speaking to this like white woman around my age who had a disability and she was neurodiverse. And we just sat and she said, you know, I don't, I don't mean this in a bad way, but like some, I, I admire all the people who are freedom fighters and who did that work because they, they felt they had to and they were leading the way. But sometimes you want to go into work and you don't want it to be a fight. Uh-huh. You don't want it to, you just want it to be the, a, a regular calm day at work without, without it being a fight. And for some people, like even for me, when I was in Canada, I was like, it got to this place where every day there was some sort of discrimination that I was experiencing. And I just wanted to have a day where it just wasn't a fight. Yeah. And I realized that instead of trying to force corporate America to adapt to what I wanted it to be, I could go out and I can create my own pathway where I am valued more, where I am paid more, where I am compensated more and where I am adding direct value to other people's lives. And I'm loving what I'm doing and I'm meeting people who I enjoy working with. That doesn't have to be the only option, but it's it's changing your mindset. Like a lot of people talk about abundance, abundance, like you need to live in this lifestyle of abundance, but it's the underlying beliefs around that. Cause that is just like shifting from this, mindset of poverty to this mindset of abundance and conceptually when you just hear that it just sounds like okay you're manifesting but how do you take that man that, that concept of manifestation and put it into practical action exactly. and say these are the underlying beliefs and actions that i need to change about what i'm doing so that i can see money differently so i can see opportunities differently so i can see my life differently so i can see my personal value differently yeah yeah and then that's that's beautiful because i think a lot of that, that message right there will resonate with a lot of people across borders um, because that idea of how we perceive money. And I think that that word, the trauma, that's that, that, that saying, the trauma of money is a very powerful thing. Um, might name this episode after that, actually, because that's powerful. Um, and so lastly, I just want you to kind of wrap things up by saying or sharing what you want your legacy to be. I always ask that to my guests because it's important, um, this podcast has turned into a legacy project for me and what I uh, even sort of a time capsule um, for my descendants. Um, And so I always think about that, you know, maybe something for you to share and maybe your descendants may hear it later on is what did you want your legacy to be when it's all said and done? It's, it's been pretty consistent for me for the last 10 years. It's, I haven't thought about putting into one sentence though. So this is a good exercise. Um, 
it's about creating access for people who have come, who've experienced historical oppression so that they can create wealth, healthy, and I, I see wealth as both financial wealth, but healthy relationships. Mm. And in the future, I would like that to lead to reconstructing how we think about the economy and how we think about how we structure like money, like the, the way we value that piece of paper. Instead of making that the king, let's make a structure that is going to benefit the greater community that's more accessible like if you if you start reading about economics you'll see how that money is getting filtered into the one percent let's build out a system where money gets distributed effectively by creating social enterprises where we create businesses that give back let's let's think about how we give back to our communities differently but it starts with giving the people who have are experiencing that historical oppression access to wealth and understanding of how to create healthy relationships. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's well said. And again, it kind of just resonates with what, and I think the poetic thing about what you described is that it kind of seems similar to what your dad, rest his soul, was kind of doing underground. Well, I shouldn't say underground, but behind the scenes, right? Like really trying to create that, that, um, that social enterprise and give back and help other people collectively learn how to fish so that we can kind of all share the wealth, right? Um, and and not just steal from one another because that's what that's the system and that's the environment and that we've been born into. That's the world we've been born into where it's it's kind of um, you know for kill or be killed, eat or don't eat type of thing. Um, so. Uh, I'd like to just, again, Jet, thank you so much for taking the time to just share your story, to share your insight, to share um, your knowledge um, with what you do and how can people reach you and stay in touch or just be able to, you know, sign up and, and, and be coached by you. Yeah, so if you, if you, you listen to podcasts, um, I have Happy Career Formula with Jet Stubbs. You can find that wherever podcasts are available. And if you want to learn more about what I do or see where you are in the seven steps to um, design work to fit your life and create that professional growth for yourself, whether that's a job, a freelance service, or a business, you can take a quiz that's available on my website, jetstubs.com. So J-E-T-T-E-S-T-U-B-B-S.com. And you can take that quiz and it will tell you where you are and what your next step could be to create professional growth for yourself where you have more access. All right. Thank you so much again, Jeff, for jumping on the show. Um, again, here at My Black is Transnational, whatever we can do to support you and your business, your podcast, please let us know. We want to see you win. Um, and again, we'd love to have you on sometime in the near future to just continue to talk about and update us of what, what else you're doing and how you're impacting our transnational communities. Absolutely. I would love to. And one more thing I'll add, if you listen to the podcast, go to episodes one through four, you'll see my story and I'll walk you through the seven steps and um, the, the top lessons I've learned from career crisis so that you can avoid your own career crisis in the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the wisdom, right? Learning from others and not having to go through it yourself. All right. Thank you so much, Jet. We really appreciate it. So that's going to do it for this episode of My Black is Transnational. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and review the podcast. 
You can learn more about this podcast by visiting our website at blacktransnational.com. You can follow me, the host, at blacktransnational underscore on Instagram, or you can follow the podcast at blacktransnational podcast on Facebook and Instagram. So until next time, my name is Dr. Kalei Bay Lambert. My black is transnational. And I hope by the end of this, yours will be too. Peace.